welcome to the Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. In this edition of our tour through the wild, wild world of everything automotive, I'm happy to welcome back Chris Muir. Chris is my favorite technician. He's a professor at Centennial College, and he's an industry consultant. Today on the Driving Podcast, it's Ask the Mechanic. Welcome, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me again. I have got a topic. I want to start out right out of the gate. Um, addressing the theft issue here in Ontario, but across the country, it's going through the roof. Part of this is because we have really weak federal laws, frankly, for catching this stuff. It's more organized crime now than kids joyriding like it used to be back in the day. Um, I also find people are increasingly confused by the best practices for protecting their very expensive investment. Can you talk a little bit about um, relays and onboard diagnostic ports that they're hacking and the difference between an immobilizer and what does my car have? What does my car need? Can you give us a little clinic here on car theft? Yeah, I can, I can uh, do my best to give you a a slight uh, look into how these things work. So um, for all of the cars sold here in Canada, we're supposed to have factory installed immobilizers or any theft systems. Uh, I can't recall the year that it started, but it's, it's you know, within the last five or ten years that it was mandatory. Um, and those uh, systems are supposed to stop the engine from running if you try to start the car with the wrong key or in the incorrect sequence. Um, the recent rash of thefts and the most stolen cars here in Canada right now use a uh, wireless transmitter in order to give the car a virtual handshake to let it start. So that's those push to start cars where you don't actually need a key. These things, technology is wonderful. It seems really convenient, but they're super, super easy to steal. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we're seeing the biggest theft problems. Um, and how the thieves get a hold of that ID, I mean, it can, it can vary. Uh, sometimes it's you leaving your keys right near the front door and they'll actually scan the uh, RFID. So they'll ask the key uh, electronically for the code. The key will shout the code out and they'll use a box uh, that repeats the code in order to start the car and remove it from your driveway in just a few seconds. Um, You know, uh, other times they'll walk by you and copy your key in a parking lot, stuff like that. Um, but it's all done electronically. There's no mechanical key anymore to uh, prevent these cars from uh, starting and being taken. Uh, getting these ones to have a aftermarket immobilizer on them, uh, some type of a blocking system, becomes a real challenge. Um, older cars, it was super easy. We could intercept the ignition signal. Uh, we could have, you know, uh, handshakes and switches in the car and stuff like that uh, in order to stop um wayward individuals from stealing them but with this advent of uh, radio frequency keys it's made it actually really easy if you have a little bit of tech savviness to take the car and run away with it i i heard that uh and this is something i do no sorry something i did when you're in a parking lot and you think oh did i lock my car or not and you do it from a distance because you can hear it bleeping they can apparently they're waiting around for people to do that they know that distance, they can stand there in the center and grab it. They're also putting um, air tags somewhere in your car to come back and get it later. So air tags has been, I mean, it's not just for cars, right? It's a personal safety thing. It's a property safety. Air tags are horrible because they will tell you the GPS coordinates of, of a vehicle. So, you know, they might cruise 
the mall parking lot and look for your brand new, very expensive luxury car that they know it's pretty easy to steal. Drop an air tag on it. Wait till you're asleep at night. Drive by the house. Yep, cars there. You know, look for the signal that you use to lock your car with earlier in the day. They've copied it already. Drive up to the car, start it, drive away. And I think uh, I was talking to an industry expert, someone I talk to frequently, unfortunately, about this stuff. And now what they're increasingly doing is going in through the onboard diagnostic port, which is that little thing under your steering column where your mechanic can, you know, get a code to see what's wrong with your car. So they don't even need to relay the key. They're just breaking into your car, going into that little thing and recoding their own keys that they have with them. So you're, you're, you're standing there holding a dummy key. And he said that's actually increasingly the way they're doing it over boosting the signal. Another person I talked to said the problem is that whatever they come up with, the thieves are one step ahead and you can get this stuff on the internet. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's not wrong at all. So uh, I've got a scan tool that I use to reprogram keys. I think I paid $1,200 for it on Amazon. It was got sent to my door. There's no, you know, are you a legitimate business? It was, here's a professional level tool that you can use to change features in a car. You plug it into the OBD port. And yeah, I can learn new mechanical keys and it doesn't take me, you know, 60 seconds. It might take me five minutes maximum. But at one in the morning, if you're quiet, five minutes is no time at all, right? We're seeing all the video, ring video and stuff from people's front porches as their cars get taken. And thousands of cars, the first week of January, 100 cars in Peel in a week. Like this, this stuff is crazy. And Quebec now is getting their the stuff that's stolen the most they're making owners put in the tag system which embeds a whole bunch of sensors all over that they couldn't possibly all find and it's a one-time thing 500 bucks i believe are do you think increasingly we're going to have to be considering this the same way we'd put in better mats (laughs) like when we buy a car i'm angry that I could buy a brand new car and it could be taken in 10 seconds. How come the manufacturer doesn't do more? Because they sell more cars, of course, Lorraine. But uh, th- doesn't that make you kind of angry? Well, it's it's not even it's not even that they sell more cars. It it's, comes down to the cost, right? They're always trying to sell a product for the least amount of cost. And everything that would counteract theft is going to cost more. The training to let the technicians cut new keys when you lose your keys is going to cost more. Registration of keys to cars would cost more, right? Like there's just, there's so many costs that the manufacturer doesn't want to shoulder, so it falls on the shoulders of the consumer. Um, If you watch, so a lot of your listeners may have have heard of uh, the Kia boys in the States, where they go around and they they steal uh, low-tech Hyundais and Kias and take them for joyrides and everything else like that. We don't have that problem with Canadian domestic cars because we have mandates for anti-theft systems in the cars. In the U.S., it's an ignition switch that you can turn with a screwdriver once you break it off the uh, key cylinder, right? So it's really easy to steal those cars. Why don't the ones in the States have an anti-theft system like ours? Because it wasn't required. The government didn't say this is something you must have on the car in order to reduce crime. So... They didn't put it on because of a few pennies that it would have uh, cost them. So two huge insurance providers in the U.S. announced last week there's a whole raft of those very cars you're talking about that they won't insure anymore. 
because it's so insanely easy to steal them. But that's not a Canadian issue. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. So uh, Canadian domestic cars, the same model that you would get in the States, have anti-theft on them where the U.S. versions do not. Okay. I just wanted to get that. I wanted to clarify that for listeners because we get so many American headlines and we have to use their stats because Canadian statistics are terrible and very out of date. So anyway, we do consume a lot of American news and I want to know which of it is relevant and which is not. Um, As we're talking about this industry that can't seem to find its feet in some respects in thefts, uh, the used car market. You and I had notes yesterday back and forth, and you called it a hellscape. And I think you're right. It is. What are you seeing right now as a technician? So as a technician, and, and I mean, as a um, person with vehicular ADD, so I've, I've gone through quite a few cars in my life, but um, usually I can scoop in and buy up something that's reasonably quality for relatively low price. And that right now does not exist. Cheap cars are not a real thing. And if it's cheap, it is trash. I mean, garbage, uh, if it comes, I'm using my quotey fingers here, certified, it's not, right? You know, um, things that have been patched together just to put them on the used car market and people paying through the nose for this stuff. Uh, you know, a $1,000 car going for 11 that kind of stuff, right? It's just, it, it's a nightmare if you are looking at used cars right now. I had to tell someone yesterday, um, like, I don't, you have to be careful of curbsiders at all times, but I know increasingly dealers, are, are they doing as much oversight as they should be? Like I say to people, at least it's certified, you'll have OMVIC that can back you up if you buy it from a dealer, but dealers are giving no room to anybody on anything. And I've heard lots of horror stories that a lot of them are letting stuff go through. They're not, you know, reconditioning them the way they should be. Is that, is that fair? So, I mean... OMVIC is a good oversight for dealers and it gives us a, a, an avenue of recourse, but there's so many people that don't know about the recourse. And right now the, the, the inventory is so slim that you're absolutely right. Dealers are selling things that they wouldn't have touched two years ago. Wouldn't have even looked at, right? That would have gone to the, the um, used car reseller or the auction or whatever, and they will slap a set of brakes on it, make it past safety just barely. Uh, it, it's not the same quality, and it's, I don't want to speak for every dealer. It's going to vary based on, you know, the kind of the morals of the dealer and their sales departments. But for a consumer, there's nothing above, you know, two dealers that sell the same marquee that says this one's all right, and the other one is a, you know, a weasel in a suit. Um, it, it doesn't make it any easier for consumers when they're looking for a car, and I mean. Things like uh, Carfax and car proofs are great so long as, you know, it's actually a collision. It's actually been reported. Things have actually been recorded or written down. Uh, and, and then you get into the older cars where it's not something that would have been recorded. It's not a collision. It's not a major impact. It's not, you know, an insurance thing. It's an old tired engine that's burning oil. And, you know, how do you tell an engine has been burning oil on a 10-minute test drive? And the dealer hanging over your head going, well, I've got another guy behind you that wants to buy this car. So, no, you can't take it to your mechanic. That's what's making it really hard for consumers right now. What What's some good advice that we can tell people who a lot of people I've told them to put it off, you know, put off buying a car, used car. Well, it's three years now. And a lot of them are saying, Lorraine, be quiet because, you know, we finally have to do it. 
So facing this hellscape, there's my quotey fingers. What what are the first things you're going to tell somebody who is looking for a used car? So first things first, assess your needs, right? What do you really need out of the vehicle? And sometimes what you really need out of the vehicle isn't the top tier used vehicle that you're looking for, but instead you might get into a brand new lower spec vehicle for almost the same price as you would pay for something slightly upmarket in this hellscape used car environment. Um, we were chatting again uh, before before uh, the podcast uh, about my customer with their 2009 Element that they bought uh, 18 months ago for $11,000 with over 200,000 kilometers on it. It needs a catalyst now, so there's $2,000. It needs an engine, there's probably another three or $4,000. Uh, as well as all of the things that a car net that now has 230,000 kilometers would need. And we're talking about the used car market and what that customer desires. And, and kind of the very first suggestion I gave to my customer was, I hate to see you go because I'm not a dealer technician anymore, but go look at something new. You may find that that is better than dealing with the used car market. So that's that's just kind of my my first suggestion. If you do have to buy a used car, Make sure you're dealing with a reputable company, somebody that's going to let you take the car to another mechanic, to, you know, uh, I hate to say your buddy, but if your buddy is a, a, a mechanic or actually knows cars inside and out, have it inspected, do a couple tests on the car. Maybe somebody that's an expert in the model of car that you're looking for that would see, you know, repeat concerns or failures with the vehicle, knows what to look for if it's been patched together, if there's been a collision, if it's full of bondo, that kind of stuff, right? Too often I see people make these love impulse purchases with their used cars and they buy absolute nightmares. Well, I think sometimes people are desperate as well now and the cars are always emotional when you're buying them for whatever reason. But I'm I'm speaking to people now who have waited two years or three years. They're, you know, hoping the prices would soften a little. They're starting to not really seeing it filter through just yet, but they are used car prices are starting to soften, but some people are desperate and I tell them, put out the word to everyone, you know, that you're looking for a car because we've got a lot of people who are staying work from home and they've got two cars and they're thinking, we don't need two cars. We've got seniors who are aging out of driving, but I, and how many times do you say to somebody, Oh, you know, I was looking for a car and they go, oh, it's too bad. You know, my cousin had one and just got rid of it, just sold it or something. So I tell people to use the network, tell everyone, you know, that you're looking. And I don't care if you end up with Grand's Buick with very low miles on it. it you know, at least you're not going to be getting an 09 element with 240,000 K on it. Well, listen, Grand's uh, cars are, are some of my favorites, right? I am uh, an American car fan. And uh, one of my, my more recent commuter cars was a Crown Victoria, a uh, big old rear-wheel drive sedan that you could tow a house with, right? I don't need a pickup truck to go back and forth to work. And, uh, you know, my summer, my classic cruiser is an old Caprice with no miles on it that I got for next to nothing because it's got that, that unpalatable, oh, it's Grandpa's car. Well, Grandpa's car is, you know why Grandpa bought the car? Because it's beautiful. It floats. The seats are comfortable. The AC works. It's never seen snow because grandpa didn't have to go to work, right? These are some of the better used cars that you're going to get is something that might not be as flashy and snazzy, but oh boy, bells and whistles. 
old people cars have bells and whistles in spades. <laughs> so ask around, put word out, let people know that you're looking. Um, at- and be willing to compromise. Don't go for the most popular car because it's the most expensive car as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm telling people, if you get in the longest lineup, you're going to wait the longest and pay the most. So look somewhere else in the showroom. Um, Kind of related to this a little bit. I have a lot of people say, how do I find a good mechanic? What are some tips you would look for? And this, I know a mechanic has to be kind of close to where you live to make it doable for most people, like within a 15 minute walk, let's say, or something. But what are some signs you look for? I've had mine for 25 years. I know what I look for. But what would you say to somebody who is new and looking for a reliable mechanic? So probably some of the best ways that you can find a good mechanic is word of mouth, right? Ask your neighbors, ask your friends, ask people in the neighborhood that deal with people and see if they've had a long-term relationship with a mechanic. Uh, a lot of time, if you ask a neighbor, who is your mechanic? They'll say, oh, it's Jim down at Jiffy Lube, or not Jiffy Lube, please. Uh, um, <laughs> Jim down at the corner garage, right? Uh, and if they have that kind of personal relationship, well, all of a sudden, that, that's really something. Um, too often, I see you know someone saying, oh, I go to giant garage conglomerate number seven, and I don't know who works on my car. Well, if you don't know who's working on your car, you don't know the quality of work that you're going to get back. Having a mechanic that will come to the front desk and talk to you and deal with you and take patience and explain and be transparent. By God, I've seen so many mechanics that are afraid of customers and won't talk to them. And uh, I'm not saying every time, but a lot of the time it's because it's a little sleight of hand. It's a little shifty. Oh, I don't want them in my bay. Well, why don't you want them in your bay? And as a trained mechanic, I walk over and I go, oh, now I see it's, it's you know, the brakes are marginal. I would recommend that they ride them through and you're trying to get either a full job out of it or a service or, you know, something like that. So communication with your mechanic and word of mouth are probably two of my biggest must-haves if I'm looking for someone to service my stuff. And I mean, as being a mechanic and working out of my yard, there's stuff that, or yard, out of my shop at home, there's stuff that I can't do here, right? So I've got my own tire people and I've got my own alignment guy and local, not ones that I used to work with in the city. Uh, And it becomes that, hey, this is what I want. What can you do for me? Uh, Word of mouth, people that I live around uh, here uh, in order to find my auxiliary service people. So, yeah, talk to your neighbors is probably number one, and then talk to the mechanic you intend to use. That's, I know, my mechanics, whenever I need a windshield or bodywork or whatever, they've got such a tight community, and they all work together, and I trust them all because they know this is a long-term thing, that they're getting repeat customers from each other. And I feel really happy to be able to recommend all these other people as I learn who they are. And it really is that word of mouth and, you know, handing the information over amongst ourselves, which is great. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more of the driving podcast. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. I'm being joined today by Chris Moore. We'll be right back. And we're back with the driving podcast. I'm joined today by Chris Muir. He's a professor at Centennial College, my favorite technician. I would like to ask you a question that 
is increasingly happening, especially with a lot of the uh, Tesla headlines going on. EVs have always had tons and tons of, I'd say the, the past five years, the EV conversation has heated up like crazy, but we haven't seen um, uh, so many to back it up. All of a sudden, we're starting to see them. We're starting to see more of this stuff. And now, with the price of cars getting so insane, now we're facing people saying, what's wrong? Is it okay if I still want an ICE, an internal combustion engine car? Is it okay? I, I want to keep my gas car. I have no interest in getting into this whole world of EVs. I know you have two. I know you have lots of cars. But what I, I'm getting people, people are getting almost defensive because they don't want to buy an electric vehicle. And actually, I said to them, if you've got a perfectly good car, I don't blame you in the least. Why would you get rid of a perfectly good car? And I know all the environmental concerns. I learned about mining, like all this stuff. So people are starting to feel pressure. How should we be handling this? Is it wrong that somebody wants to keep buying a gas car if an EV isn't right for them? What, what do you think is going to happen with this? So, so this is this is something that you see, and it's almost sensationalist, right? Oh my God, they're coming for my gasoline car. Nobody's coming for your gas cars. There is so many gasoline-powered cars on the road, and there's going to be so many gasoline-powered cars produced until uh, we outright ban them, which I can see being a, a deadline that we keep pushing back because some of the EV technology, 100%, isn't there. There's a lot of technology wrapped up into it. There's a bunch of uncertainty wrapped up into it. And if you do an actual cost analysis right now of running an EV and purchasing the car versus uh, keeping, you know, the old Civic on the road, the Civic starts to make a whole bunch more sense, except for very specific uh, instances, right? Um, so if you want a gas car and you've got your heart set on a gas car, go buy the gas car that you want. Understand the operating costs that come with a gas car. You're going to have a lower initial purchase price. You're going to spend more every week on gasoline. Uh, you're going to have to do a little bit more maintenance as far as oil changes and, you know, uh, different uh, gasoline maintenance system uh, stuff, spark plugs. and uh, Again, all of that stuff is marginal especially if you drive the car like a normal person you do in town mileage not a whole bunch of big road trips seeing the cost benefit to buying a new ev all of a sudden comes from you know your daily commute how far do you go i bought two ev cars because we live stupidly an hour and an hour and a half away from work respectively i was spending more on gasoline than i was would be for a car that was better equipped uh, you know, cruise control, air conditioning, heated seats. I wanted all of this stuff, and I had a very, very base uh, gasoline Micra. Uh, and there was nothing wrong with the Micra. I absolutely adored it, except it was $80 every two days, but that was when gas was $2 a liter. Um, you know, it was windy and cold in the winter. It was excessively hot in the summer. It squeaked, it rattled, all that kind of stuff. And so the electric made sense for me. I got something that was quiet comfortable and cost me less in day-to-day -day operating costs. But most people aren't silly enough to work an hour and a half away from their house. Um, so at that point, you know, if you've got a little car that you love, keep the little car that you love, throw a few bucks into it every now and again, make the repairs. And I mean, you are going to save money by keeping that car on the road. There, there's nothing, there's no two ways about it. It's cheaper to keep a car than it is to go out and buy a brand new one. 
most of the time, most of the time. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the repairs that are involved with a gas car. We're all familiar with those, and I think this is part of the problem: is if you can't imagine um, the difference in a maintenance schedule with an EV, because it is very different. So, what we know we're comfortable with, we know it's going to cost us this much for gas. We know the transmission, you know, things could happen there. EV is a whole new world. How is the other side of this equation handling it? Are we seeing mechanics um, and dealerships and everybody ready to deal with EVs? Are they as familiar with them as they should be? What kind of education is going into that? And I've had some people say, I've they've met mechanics who are going, I'm not touching it. Are we at a kind of middle ground here? Where's the shift going? So you're seeing... You're seeing, uh, for, for those of us that are, are a couple of years older, um, we might rem- remember a time in the industry when all of a sudden the computers were put in cars and we had fuel injection. And we saw this mass wave of retirements and old guys going, if it doesn't have a carburetor, I'm not touching it, right? Uh, and that was kind of the late 80s. And we're seeing that again. We're seeing a lot of the older technicians and a lot of the traditional mechanics look at it and go, I'm not a heavy-duty electrician. I'm not touching the 400-volt battery. I'm not interested in hybrid technologies. I'm not interested in all this kind of stuff. It is more widespread now than it was way back then. We are seeing, uh, especially aftermarket service providers that are not ready for this shift in technology. They don't have the tools to work on it, and the tools are cost prohibitive. Uh, The aftermarket support for these cars is not there. So I've got a Chevrolet Bolt. And full disclosure, I can go on, you know, uh, an aftermarket parts site. I think I can get brakes and maybe tie rods for it. But struts, I can't get. Control arms, I can't get aftermarket. You know, the the basic mechanical parts aren't available to us aftermarket yet. Uh, The Tesla stuff, you'll find a lot of it's stolen from other car companies, uh, Mercedes control arms, Dodge parts, stuff like that. But as far as the technician's willingness to work on it and the amount of training available, it's not quite there yet. There's new training programs coming out. And the real problem here is uh, our automotive curriculum in Ontario is over a decade old. We are not ready as, uh, a, as an institution uh, to teach mechanics about electric cars. It's not in the must-know portion of their training program yet. Okay, so that's a little bit crazy. But it's fair that if a dealer sells you a car, a new EV, that dealer can maintain that vehicle. Are they able to get those parts you can't find? So, yeah. Or is there a lag? From from the manufacturer, they should have access to those parts. Now, there is lag due to the semiconductor shortage that we had during COVID, and nothing's caught up yet. We have low production numbers of certain parts. We have backlogs, back orders, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I know my wife works for Ford. They've got cars that are sitting around waiting for computers and battery pieces and programming and stuff like that. Um, I had a problem with my 2019 Volt where it needed a contactor for the battery pack. I ended up after seven months of waiting, trading that car in for a newer one because General Motors couldn't get that part when I needed it. I was spending more on gasoline and the rental than I would have been just paying for the new car, the difference in a new car. So they're having issues getting some of the parts. Aftermarket's having issues getting some of the parts. 
but it's not that they don't make the parts, it's supply chain issues, again, in the manufacturer's side. In the aftermarket side, it is nobody makes the parts yet. Wow, okay. But that's also reflected in normal, now I'm doing my quotes, I, I just had to have a car repaired and it took, it took two weeks and it was body work. And this is going to, this is a segue into our next topic. Um, in most parts of the country, they ask you if you have a collision and it's under $2,000 in Alberta, I believe, if it's under 3000 in Ontario and no one's been hurt, um, you don't need the cops, clear it, steer it and clear it, get it off the road. It causes all kinds of problems. And you know, the same goes for reporting. And so they actually say if it's under 3000 you don't have to report it. Could you please explain to our listeners how impossible it is to know for some, for someone to know what $3000 looks like in a collision? Uh a scuff on a bumper is 1500 bucks, right? So if it's more than a scuff on the bumper or if you can't see beyond the bumper, it's more than $3000. I mean it's just what it is. We're looking at um, specialized steel, specialized bonding process. So if you've got dents or crinkles in the back of the car, it's way over 3000 bucks. Bumper covers, you know, you're 500 to to $1,000 just for the raw part. That doesn't include all the hours finishing it. If it had parking sensors in it, well, look out, this is going to be dynamite, right? If you're yeah. looking at taillights, they're $500 a piece on average. All of this stuff adds up so quickly. $3,000 is nothing at all when it comes to car repair. Nothing. That's why I, I ask people, if you're in a collision or somebody hits you, even in a parking lot, go to a reporting center. Just report it. And a lot of people go, oh, let my insurance cover it. If they want to pay it out themselves, if they're at fault, um, that's fine. They can do that. But you have to cover your own butt. And honestly, mine got dinged, and it was where the doors meet on the side, you know, my little hatchback. And it was in a parking lot. And I, came, and I didn't notice. It was on the passenger side, so I didn't notice for a couple of days. And I looked at it, and I went, oh, I do not have $3,000 right now before Christmas. It was actually over $5,000. And when I went to get a quote before I called insurance, because I know the body guy, he said, he did a quick quote. He goes, it's going to be this much. He goes, unless I get in there and find something because of all those sensors and cameras, like until they can actually know. And it was covered under insurance because it was a hit and run classified as a hit and run. You still don't want to have a lot of those, but I beg people, you can't know by looking unless you're a current body shop person. It is so hard to know. And that's just one vehicle. Forget the other one that's involved. And the other thing is don't hit and run people in parking lots. Your karma is going to come and bite you. It is bad form. It is bad form to do that. It's so expensive for everyone, and we all pay on insurance rates going up. But I was just brokenhearted. I like my little car. Before our first bolt, we had a Fiesta, and it was rear-ended. And it we drove it to the police station in order to show them the damage and make our reports and everything else like that. Your Your notion that everyone should go to the reporting center with fraud the way it is and half-truths and lies, absolutely report it. Get your side of the story on paper and get it there first. Whether you did it or not, get to a reporting center and report any accident that you have. Uh, it's just, and again, so anyways, this little fiesta that we had, we drove it to the reporting center, we drove it home, we parked it, and the car was a write-off. It didn't look like a write-off, we had a little wrinkle in the trunk, but new technology, right? It's got this uh, hardened steel 
superstructure around the, the passenger compartment. That saved my wife from major trauma. She got rear-ended at 60, uh, and the car was just written off. It looked like, oh, you throw a couple taillights in it, a bumper cover, and drive it again. Now the floor had a little crinkle in it, and there was a little bend on the one side, and it was junk, you know, and it wasn't an old car at the time. Now, I've, I've heard if uh, airbags go off, especially on a cheap car, they're too expensive uh, to replace all the airbags, so they'll write it off. And headlines lately have been Tesla's insurance are writing off Tesla's because they're too expensive to repair. So I think when you talk about making sure you report stuff, absolutely, it's cover your butt, whether it goes into your insurance or not. And the thing is, even if the other side goes and gets their car for estimate from body people, that can end up in insurance reports. Everything is electronic now. Every time someone starts typing, this information is going out there and people are going, I, I never had that collision. I never reported it. How come it's on my, on my Carfax? And it's like, yeah, cause that stuff gets reported from very, a lot of different directions. Uh, I have a couple of reader questions here. Um, Gary wants to know he's, his wife's Nissan, the remote starter. It shuts off before he would like it to. He's further up in Ontario. It's cold. Is there any way to extend the remote starter time? Factory starters, generally not. You can ask the dealer if they can, repro- can program the vehicle for a longer runtime, but generally remote starts idle the car for 10 minutes and shut it off. Uh, most of the time you get two remote start events before the car will lock it, lock you out and you actually have to go put the key in the vehicle. Okay. Rhonda wants to know what a brake service means. So this is this is something regional, and this is something that some manufacturers put in the owner's manual, and some don't. So I see a lot of the time people going, "Ah, oh, this is a scam." No, it's really, really not. Uh, what a brake service is is we take the brake wheel end apart. So we take the caliper out, we take the uh, the holder out, we take the pads out of the holder. We clean everything up. We have road salt and debris and water. You know, we're in a humid climate. Um, All of this stuff is bare metal surfaces or very thinly coated metal surfaces, rubbing surfaces. So we get dirt and salt on the steel and it rots. Well, it rusts so hard that it will seize the brakes together. Sometimes it's one side, sometimes it's both sides. So you see a reduced braking uh, performance would be kind of number one. Number two, you'll see an accelerated pad wear because they don't get to rebound. They can't move freely in the holder. So we take it all apart, we sand it all down, um, clean it all up, and we re-lubricate the moving surfaces. We make sure the rubber boots are still good. We make sure the pins still move back and forth, um, that the seal around the piston is okay, that you haven't seized a caliper. Service it, like I said, clean it all up, lubricate it, put it all back together. And it helps us extend the life of your brakes. It helps us ensure that you have equal application, which keeps the rotors cleaner, which means the rotors are going to last longer. We have even application of the pad, means pads are going to last longer, and you get maximum performance out of your braking system. I think this is where it really helps when you have a tech that you trust, because what happens sometimes is you hear, we should do a brake service, and then they come out and say, you need a brake job. And people go, oh, you just went in there to look to tell me, you know, to sell me brakes. Whereas the people I go to all the time, every time over, I know they're doing a brake service and they tell me when I'm going to need a brake job to be done. And so that consistency lets me feel 
good knowing that I'm not getting ripped off. Well, the the other part of that is a lot of the time I'll take the wheels off the car in a tire rotation or whatnot, what have you, and I'll look at the brakes and, you know, if there's four millimeters remaining, we're not doing a service. Let's ride these out and then we'll clean everything up when we put new brakes on it in a month or two, right? You've got to be careful when you're, you're recommending these services. If there's lots of life left in the brakes, if it's been a year since they've been serviced before, absolutely. Let's clean them up. Let's make sure they move all nice. But if they're that marginal, hey, we're going to need a brake job in, you know, a month to six months, don't waste the customer's money. That That's... That's kind of where where I've seen some stuff in the industry as well. Um, people not being completely above board when they recommend a service like that. You brought up when you are doing a tire replacement, you take a boo at the brakes. I want to go off off piste, as they say in Morocco. Um, when I got lost in the Sahara for a week and a half, I only did Tangier. I never went to the desert. So go on. <laughs> I'm a gazelle. Um, <laughs> When you get your tires changed over, you should go back and get them retorqued. And we see awful headlines. I've written columns with you about this in the past. And it happened about six months ago here. It was a boat trailer and a reader scolded me and said, that was not a retorking on a car. That was a trailer. I'm like, I'm using the headline to make a point here, dude. Anyway, can you just, we're coming back up into switch time again in April. Um, what can you tell people about changing their tires over and what they should be going back for? So when you change your tire over, a good technician will look and make sure that uh, the two mating surfaces are all, aren't all corroded. Um, if they are corroded, scuff them all, make them all nice and clean so they mate together properly. Anytime you've got anything between the two mating surfaces, that is an area that can collapse, compress, um, artificially make the lug nuts loose, right? Uh, anything coating the lug nuts or the hubs are not recommended by the manufacturer. So I'm gonna, you're gonna get a bunch of hate mail about uh, me saying this, but put the lug nuts on dry. There's no anti-seize, no oil, no, you know, grandpa's favorite deodorant stick on the lug nuts. Put them on dry, like the manufacturer says. It ensures that they won't loosen off. Um, but when we torque them. Two mating surfaces go together. Do we have a piece of dirt in there? Don't know. Um, are we compressing the aluminum of your new rim excessively? We don't know. You drive it for 50 to 100 kilometers and bring it back and get the technician to retorque it. And I mean torque it. Don't let them ugga dugga the wheels on and not check the torque. Manufacturers have specific loads they want applied to the threads. There's engineers that get paid millions of dollars to make sure that this thing is going to stay together, stick together, and not come off on the highway. Getting them retorqued is just another step to make sure that the force applied to retain your wheel is correct. Things can happen when the people put wheels on. They can come loose from metals compressing, relaxing, getting into the, their natural positions maybe had a little bit of corrosion on the hub and it needs to be forced back past that corrosion or the little fleck of rust fell off, get them retorqued. It is for your own safety, for your own pocketbook. I couldn't imagine the guilt of having a wheel come off and hurt somebody or the financial burden of that same thing. Well, if the garage has retorqued them, the liability will fall to them. Exactly. As far as I know, if you don't do that, it will fall to you especially if the garage has noted that you need to come back for a retorque and you ignore that advice. Yeah. And it's, it's free. We go in, they come running out and go, yep. like, 
it's yeah his best practices and that's what they're doing um chris this is uh we've, this time has flown by this has been amazing that wraps up this edition of the driving podcast i'm lorraine sommerfeld i'd like to thank my guest chris muir i hope we've answered some of your questions let us know if you have more We'll be back with more consumer topics. Subscribe to The Driving Podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite player. Be sure to check out our other episodes. Bye for now. If, like me, you live life in four-wheel drive while brushing your teeth with rough-cut pine lumber, you'll want to listen to the Truck Guy podcast from driving.ca. The Truck Guy podcast is presented by driving.ca's Matthew Guy. I'll host a new expert guest every episode to talk about pickup trucks and 4x4s. Ride Shotgun as I explore truck-related topics ranging from towing and overlanding the latest models and their hot new features. Produced right here in Canada, the Truck Guy podcast is your dirt road ride to fresh inside takes on the latest truck news, test drives, how-to tips, and, just maybe, a dose or two of high-octane opinion. Join me to explore the best that Canada has to offer for off-road wheeling, towing and hauling, camping, and a bit of truck-based DIY. (laughs) Beds aren't just for sleeping, they're for hauling dirt, towing trailers, and just about any other work or recreation task you can think of. The Truck Guy Podcast is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite audio program.